Hey, just a heads up that there's some background parking lot noise in this episode, which I apologize for. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the third episode of Prison Perspective, where we explore the impact of this country's prison and criminal justice systems through the lens of people with firsthand experience. As always, I want to remind listeners that this episode is solely meant to showcase the perspective and experience of my guest, and I acknowledge and appreciate that there are numerous viewpoints regarding this topic. And with that, today I'm joined by Bree, who is here to tell us about her professional experience. Bree, welcome to Prison Perspective. Thank you. Um, so my name is Bree. I am a case manager. I work with people who are recently exiting incarceration. Um, I only work with people who are coming out of prison, not jail. Um, so people who have spent a significant amount of time um, in a Department of Corrections facility. Um, what my job is, is to support people in kind of rebuilding their lives, reintegrating back into the community, um, and just kind of you know, starting from scratch and helping them build stability and self-sufficiency and independence. Um, so with that, um, often what that looks like is someone will get um, released from prison, they're on parole or they're not on parole. Um, and then oftentimes they're coming out, releasing to a location where either, so people usually release to the location where their crime was committed Um, A lot of times people don't know the area that they, you know, they're not super familiar with the area where their crime occurred. They were on a road trip or whatever it was um, that they, you know, they just kind of get thrown into a community that they already aren't familiar with. So, yeah, people are often released into a community that they're not familiar with um, and they're often released homeless and without a whole lot. Um, A lot, a lot of people are released with simply the clothes that they have. And maybe a hundred dollars that they've, you know, that they earned while they were working or, um, and, and so they'll just have their, their prison clothes, which their shirt literally has their department of corrections ID number on it. Um, it's obviously not always weather appropriate and, Mm. um, and they're just kind of on their own, um, in potentially a community that they've never spent much time in. Um, so then people are, you know, they're released, they're dropped off at the parole office. Sometimes people have been dropped off at the parole office at 10 o'clock at night when it's closed. And Mm -hmm. so in a community they're not familiar with. So they're then either people will walk all night, not sleep, or if they're lucky enough to figure out where the homeless shelter is, they'll end up at the shelter um, and that's a really, a really jarring way for people to reenter the community. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't make them feel very good for one thing. And it's, it's a hard way to start. Um, the other thing that is kind of, um, a systems issue is that people will often be released without ID documentation. So, um, many people come out of prison and they don't have, a state ID, they don't have a birth certificate or a social security card. And those things, if you, you know, if you have none of those, it can take six or eight months to get Mm -hmm. just one of those back. And you have to have multiple copies to get, (laughs) or multiple documents to get the others. Um, So that is a really, really big barrier for people coming out of prison to getting employment and housing and, and all, even just their basic needs met. 
Um, so my job is to help people get through that process. Um, you know, it costs sometimes 20 or $30 to order a birth certificate. There's costs associated with everything almost. Um, mm-hmm. So people are coming out and they can't work without ID documents, but they can't pay for their ID documents without money. <laughs> so there's a lot of catch 22s for people um, when they're getting out of prison. And they're, I really would say that the system sets people up for failure in a sense. Um, and my job and people who have similar jobs to me, we end up, um, you know, doing a lot of work that, that, and helping people trying to get across these barriers that, that shouldn't even be there in the first place. Um, the other thing with the ID documents is that a lot of people, even when they are released without documents, they have a lot of hope that their documents will come to them because they've sat in, in the pre-release classes in prison or, or just in, in general, they've ordered their birth certificate or they've ordered their social security card and those things get lost in the mix. And so mm-hmm. people will come out saying, Oh, my birth certificate and my social security card, I ordered them while I was in prison and I, you know, they should be sent to the parole. And sometimes that happens. Other times, you know, DOC or Department of Corrections will say, oh, it looks like we ordered one, but we never received it. So people come out with a lot of hope <laughs> for things like that and and um, are often really let down. Um, so yeah. the system fails them in a lot of senses. Um, yeah, it seems like this system is pretty illogical and flawed in that if people don't have the support they need they're more likely to even go back to committing a crime just so that they can survive and so that's like where you come in right absolutely yeah exactly um a lot of my clients will get so frustrated with all the barriers that are in front of them that they will commit crimes on purpose to go back to prison because a lot of times people have said to me things are easier in there. I know how to survive in there. I know what I need to do. You know, I don't have to get a job. I don't have to, I don't have to like worry about ID documents. I don't have to get through all these really difficult things in order to just simply survive. So Mm -hmm. I've had clients do that, you know, um, pick up new charges simply to go back because, because it's easier. Um, And that's not out of laziness at all. That is, truly out of months and months and months of struggle and frustration and even with our support people are still struggling with getting those things because of this the way the systems are set up um so that's pretty sad (laughs) um yeah um so yeah that's that's really the the big barriers coming out um are really the ID documents are a big one. The other, another one that's huge is um, disability benefits. So a lot of people mm. who are not able to work are receiving social security disability income. Um, mm-hmm. It's like from $500 to like $1,400 a month generally. It can be more or less, um, but that's kind of the general average. Um, and when people go to prison, um, they lose their benefits. They don't get their benefits while they're incarcerated, I don't believe, um, or they're, they're not supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a couple things that can go wrong there. So um, if they don't do something right or, or if it gets messed up at the Social Security office, 
they will continue to receive that money. And then like, I have someone who just got out and he, he was receiving his benefits the whole time he was incarcerated. And then he got out and he got his card and he was like, Oh sweet. Like I can afford a motel. (laughs) I'm going to be okay. And then he got a letter saying, oops, we overpaid you. And now we're going to take about half of your benefits every month to pay it back. So, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's, you know, that's one thing that can happen. Um, I don't know how often that happens necessarily, but uh, what does happen fairly often is that people will get out and, and then they have to either reapply for SSDI benefits or they have to wait for them to get reinstated um, or, or restarted. So just to get them restarted can take a few months before they get any income. And of course they can't work necessarily in that time because they're, they're receiving SSDI because they can't work. Right. Um, so they're really, you know, they have no income for months at a time while they're waiting for that. Um, or if they have to reapply, that process can take a year, a year and a half. And, and those people truly have no income for that long while they're waiting. Um, they can apply for something called A and D. Um, I think it's called aid for the needy and disabled, which is a horrible name, (laughs) Um, but that's like two, two to $300 a month, I think. Um, so it's not enough to survive by any means. Um, and those people often end up staying at a homeless shelter, um, where they run into even more issues. Um, you know, it's pretty hard for people to, to maintain their mental health and their sobriety, much less, you know, anything else, um, when they're staying at a homeless shelter and, that creates a whole nother slew of issues. Um, you know, they can, you know, get frustrated or get in an argument and pick up new charges or they can relapse. That happens often or miss their mental health medications um, mm-hmm. and, and just go downhill from there. So it really is a problem. Um, and the other, that, that reminds me of another kind of thing that can be an issue when people are coming out is that they are often released with, 10 days or 30 days, sometimes 60 days of their, their medications. So that gives them sometimes only 10 days of medication before they have to go find, figure out how to get more. Um, and that can be really dangerous because mm-hmm. people are on, you know, sometimes antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications, um, all that stuff. And, and once people, and it is really difficult for people to get those, especially when they're released with almost nothing. And then, um, you know, they don't have a doctor. (laughs) They don't have someone necessarily who can prescribe those set up yet. They have to go find that and set it up. And then even if they have Medicaid, which is one good thing is people are released from DOC with active Medicaid. So that seems to Hmm. happen most of the time. Um, but they still have co-pays. So I have, you know, clients sometimes will have five medications that are $2 each which sounds not bad, but for someone who just got released from prison and can't work yet because they don't have their ID documents, they can't pay for those. (laughs) So it's, it's a nightmare. Um, and it's really, yeah, it, that's just one of the many ways that they're kind of set up for failure and that it's my job to help people navigate those things. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about barriers that you face in your work. And it seems like pretty much every single thing you face is a barrier. And just for someone like me who doesn't have any of the perspective or experience that you do, it just seems like how can this system be set up in this way? It's so obviously designed to allow people to fail. It just doesn't seem like it should be possible or allowed to be set up in that way. So how did you even get into this work and when you first started did you know that it was going to be so complicated and you were going to be dealing with such a flawed system um that's a really good question i to answer the first part of that i i got really interested in the criminal justice system um well i grew up watching law and order and all those you know (laughs) all that kind of stuff and so i was always interested in the criminal justice or like just in um um like behavior that wasn't i don't know there's a word for it um, but you know, just kind of, it always interests like me. atypical yeah. behavior, um, or like just not um, typical societal behavior, right? Like, um, yeah. And so, I went on a couple um, CSU. I went to CSU, Colorado State University, and I mm-hmm. went on a couple alternative spring break trips with them. Um, and I went to San Francisco to study the prison system, um, which mm-hmm. was the coolest experience of my life. Um, I did it three times and I learned so much every time. And um, that really piqued my interest. And, and at the same time, I started volunteering with a CSU um, organization called Speak Out through the Community Literacy Center. And what I was doing is going into the jail and doing creative writing workshops every week with people. And so I already knew I really liked working with the people that had criminal justice involvement. Um, and I knew that was kind of the, the field I wanted to go into. Um, and I also was majoring in social work and criminal justice. So, um, I really wanted to find a job where I could help people who are involved in the criminal justice system, specifically who have been to prison. Um, and I was really worried I was going to have to become a probation officer or a parole officer. (laughs) And I really did not want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of Googling. I found the program that I work for now. And I got a job with the organization that was not this job, but I got, I, I got moved into this job when the, when the position opened up. Um, mm-hmm. So I got really lucky. Uh, there's only two of me technically or three in Fort Collins um, Ooh, wow. doing, yeah, doing what I do, which is really cool. Um, so I feel like I got really lucky and I love my job. Um, the second part of your question was, did I know I was going to face so many barriers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I knew from, you know, my studies at school and the trips and stuff that there were barriers. Um, but I continue to be shocked every single day by how many there truly are. Um, and I, I swear I find a new one every day. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, people, I genuinely feel that people are set up for failure. The system makes it much easier to fail than it does to be successful. Um, and I feel really honored and privileged to be able to help people fight that. Because <laughs> um, it's yeah. really hard. And the other thing I want to add before I forget <laughs> is that... Um, the system is not only set up to fail people, but it's specifically, it specifically fails people who don't have, who are marginalized folks, marginalized people. Um, 
So mm-hmm. oftentimes people with mental health issues or addiction issues um, and, and just in general, people get, they're all, they probably ended up in DOC because they were already oppressed and marginalized and had trouble with systems and, and stuff like that, right? Um, and right. then when they get out, it's just times 100 uh, because they have a criminal background and they're dealing with all of the, you know, with starting over from literally scratch. Um, so the people who bounce back, the people who I see bounce back faster are the ones that have families that will house them and um, their families are privileged and they know how to, they have good credit. They know how to talk to people. Um, you know, they, they very much fit in with society because society is, you know, created for them in a sense. Um, yeah. And the ones who struggle are the ones whose families have struggled. They're low income, um, you know, maybe their family is supportive, but they don't have the resources to be able to provide to help their family member. So, you know, they might be living in a trailer with, you know, eight family members in it and they can't take one more person in. Um, those are the people that take a lot longer to bounce back and, and struggle a lot more because they don't have the financial or, um, otherwise resources to, to help them along the way. So, people who I see bounce back really quick are the people whose families have money um, or, or they have money um, yeah. and they've been to school, they have degrees and stuff like that. And, and so that's a really clear example to me of, of how the systems um, continue to like oppress marginalized people basically. Yeah. And how often would you say you're actually working with people who have the means to bounce back? Um, I would say, probably like 75% of my clients don't necessarily have the means. And then I would say probably about 25% have more, more support, more financial resources and, and things of that nature. And, um, and, and don't get me wrong. Like it's really hard for them too. Um, and they, yeah, of course. you know, they require more like, um, I don't want to say like emotional support, but moral support than anything, then, you know, with others, it's moral support and financial and, you know, basic needs, safety, shelter, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So we've been talking a lot about this system and obviously that's not just like some far away obscure (laughs) construct, (laughs) I guess. It's like, people and legislation and biases and everything. So have you ever like actually been able to interact with somebody who sort of represents this system and express your grievances to them? Or do you never have an opportunity to do anything like that? Um, That's a good question. I work pretty like fairly closely with parole and with department of corrections um, as does like my whole kind of team. But even, you know, even they're on kind of the, in the trenches, right? Like on the front lines and they're not necessarily yeah. high up. Um, and they, they can see the issues too and they try to do things about it as well, but it's really hard to make change from the bottom up. Right. So um, right. that's been kind of, that's the hard part about all this is that, you know, the ones doing the work and seeing these things firsthand aren't necessarily the ones who can en- enact change. 
Um, but the really cool thing about my job and about the, the way that we're funded, we're funded by a grant, a statewide grant. And the grant distributor works really closely with uh, Colorado Coalition, or not Colorado Coalition, uh, Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. Um, and they come to us about four times a year and they say, hey, what issues are you seeing? What barriers are you seeing? And how can we help you change them? So that's really, oh, wow. really cool to see. Um because they literally do come and ask us, you know, what issues are your people facing? Um, what are you seeing? And what do you think the solutions might be? And then they write up legislation and they go and lobby or whatever, you know, whatever it's called. Um, go basically enact change through legislation. Um, so that's really, really cool. And there are a lot of cool things yeah, happening is... in the state. It's just happening really slowly. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're seeing change, Mm -hmm. which is good, but it's just taking Mm -hmm. a while. And that the time that it takes to change might be time that some people don't have. Exactly. And they, you know, those people end up back in prison and being in prison itself, the experience itself is a traumatic experience and it changes people's brains. I mean, you have to... Mm -hmm you have to adapt and you have to adopt certain uh, ways of interacting with people and doing things and surviving Um, in order to survive in prison. You have to, to act differently than you do out here and people that gets really, you know, um, that becomes really like an ingrained thing for people. It's called institutionalization. (laughs) And so they get out Mm -hmm. and they're interacting in the same way that they were to survive. And that's not benefiting them out here. It's actually going to send them back. So that's the coolest part of my job is supporting people in navigating the bumps in the road in a different way than they're used to. And kind of working out of those habits and ways of interacting. Yeah, and how do you help work through those habits? Because, like, there's obviously that saying, like, old habits die hard. And when those habits are used to help you survive every day, then it seems like they might die even harder. Um, It's really challenging. Um, So the way that that looks for me working with people is that I get, you know, I meet with the people that I work with about once a week, most of them. And um, a lot of that just looks like, Hey Bri, I um, my girlfriend's dad started yelling at me the other day. He put me in a chokehold, and all I wanted to do was, you know, punch him. Um, but I stopped myself mm-hmm. because I knew I knew that that wasn't going to benefit me or what you know things like that. Really, it's a matter of talking through those situations, and when they do go poorly, <laughs> talking through them afterward. And saying, you know, how do you think that could have gone differently? How do you think you could do that differently in the future to, to you know, to keep you from getting into more trouble, to, to benefit you? And really just having a lot of conversations about um, mindset and, and what kind of mindset will benefit them and what kind of mindset might. It, it's really about challenging mindsets and, and like helping people look at things from a different perspective. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. Like you just sit down and have a conversation with somebody and know that it's not always going to go perfectly, but there's always room for improvement and people have the ability to improve. Yeah, that's a really important piece of it is people have, yeah, people want the, that's the thing too. That's kind of sad about all this is people want to get better. They don't want to be, Mm -hmm. you know, people, some people are in a space where they, they don't mind living the way that they're living and, and, you know, um, committing crimes and stuff like that. But often the people that I'm working with or the people that I talk to that are just getting out of prison, um, they don't, they want to change. They want to stop committing crimes. They want to get a job and get housed and be happy and healthy. But not only do some people have this system working against them, um, but they also have a lot of people whose like brains are working against them a little bit. And I, and when I say that, what I mean is mm-hmm. a, a high percentage of people who end up in prison have traumatic brain injuries and traumatic brain injuries can impact a lot of things. But one of the things that they impact a lot of the time is uh, impulse control and just, um, mm-hmm. and so that makes people more likely to commit crimes <laughs> and or use drugs or alcohol um and it makes a lot of people really quick to get frustrated and angry and blow up and so those are the kinds of things that get people back into prison right (laughs) so like some of my people are are battling against the system and their own brains and and also also the whole thing with like their brains working against them. Another thing that I'm kind of referencing is addiction. Like addiction is a disease. Yeah. Um, and, and people don't always have control over it or they don't have control over it. It's a disease. <laughs> and so like they're battling mm-hmm. against that mental illness or, or mental health problems, um, traumatic brain injuries and, and trauma, just trauma in general really changes the people interact with the world too and so um they've got all these internal barriers and battles and the system so people want to change but it's a it's really really hard yeah and then for you when you're like working with people who are going through all these struggles it's obviously important for you to keep an open mind and work to meet people where they're at but it seems like that might be easier said than done so how do you like frame your mindset and remain open yeah that's a really good question um I really I really hold some strong values about objectivity and fairness and you know seeing both sides to a story and and or you know all the sides to a story and and really believing that people can change and people are inherently good and uh I think that's a big one just the yeah. belief that people are inherently good. I often think of people as as they were when they were kids. You know, I, I look at people oh. and I think, you know, this guy was a kid like 25 years ago. He was just a kid and he didn't want to end up here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so that's one way I, I try to look at things. Um, the other thing is I have a poem that I love that I can send you after if you want. But it's called... Um, the truth about monsters and it says um it the basic message is 
monsters are just human beings who bad things have happened to essentially like hurt people hurt people kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I really have a strong belief about that too and that a lot of people who have committed crimes and have victims were also once victims of crimes or or of just bad poor treatment (laughs) you know you know bad childhoods or whatever you want to whatever it is I, I you know people don't I have a strong belief that um you know people aren't just aren't inherently bad or or doing bad things just to just because um so I think those are kind of the main things that help me see human beings instead of charges or or instead of seeing felons or convicts or whatever I just try to look at them as human beings that were kids we're, do- we're all just grown-up kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are really important <laughs> convictions. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people don't have those convictions. So when you, like, tell people about your line of work, is there a typical reaction you receive? Because you said some people might not be able to look past the crime or look past the past. Yeah. Um, the m- most common, uh, co- like, response I receive is, like, aren't you scared? Don't you, oh. like don't like why would you want to work with people like that um and my response is I'm not I'm not scared I it's a funny thing that happens when you approach someone with respect and with wanting to help them they generally don't want to hurt you (laughs) um Mm -hmm. of course there's exceptions right but um the majority of the people I work with are some of the best people I've met they have really good hearts and they just are just they just have a lot working against them um so that's the most typical response is like aren't you scared why why would you want to do that um you know and and that's just stigma that's just a result of stigma and and you know people a lot of people who say things like that don't know anyone who's been incarcerated (laughs) um yeah but once they do you know once someone they love becomes incarcerated then they start to get it stigma is something that we've talked about a lot on on this podcast because incarceration the criminal justice system is just such a heavily charged and i think generally misunderstood topic and have your clients ever talked to you about the stigma that they've experienced and how that might be impacting them in their recovery yes um that's a big deal one of the things I hear a lot is like for someone getting out of prison especially someone who's done a a long time in prison walking around the grocery store is really hard for people um they feel Mm. like people are looking at them they feel like people know that they've been to prison and are judging them um and some more concrete examples are housing and employment once someone Mm -hmm. has a, a felony on their background it's extremely difficult no matter what the felony is to get housing and to get employment employment that you know employment that isn't just general labor (laughs) um you know they it's kind of it's tough because people have to be once they have a felony on their background they pretty much have to be open to working minimum wage um unless they've got a degree or a um some sort of vocational, you know, field that they're in, mm-hmm. uh, certifications. They pretty much have to be open to working a low wage job and they pretty much have to be open to living in a, in a 
neighborhood that has a lot of drugs and criminal activity in it. Um, so that's one way that I see people are really, really dragged down and kept down because even if they're doing good, they're sober, they're working, they still can't find an apartment that's not in the worst neighborhood in town <laughs> that will accept them um, because they have poor yeah. credit history and the criminal background and, you know, all the things, all the things are kind of working against them. Um, and so even when someone's a year out of prison, they're still struggling with these things, these barriers, um, even if they are sober and they're, you know, they've got their mental health addressed and all that stuff at the, just that one thing on their background can really, um, keep them down, keep them from being successful. Yeah. Wow. And I feel like for listeners who will be hearing this, it can be like, this is such a huge problem and it's so institutionalized that it seems like there's nothing I can do. So do you have anything that we as a community and just human beings can do to become more aware and like help reentry programs like yours to succeed? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that we can all do is, um, give people a second thought I mean, when you hear, like, this is, I'm mostly thinking for, like, employers and landlords, like, you know, not just um, shutting people down because they've got a felony or, or looking at someone on the news, like they're, like they're a monster um, and kind of taking a second thought and saying, well, I wonder what really did happen. Or I, or, you know, I wonder what this person was struggling with or, you know. Um, just kind of having conversations with people, with our family members, with our friends about, um, about the barriers that exist and the stigma that's not always true. Um, and don't get me wrong, like there are people who have really severely hurt others and are continuing to do that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that every, everyone who's been to prison is, you know, um, uh, doing great, <laughs> doing great things. Yeah, of course. But um, there are a really good majority of people who are trying to to get better and do better things, and and they are doing well, and they're still, you know, suffering from the stigma. So I think with stigma, one of the big things we can do is just educate people, have conversations with people about um, the systemic issues, you know, uh, institutionalized or just. Um, racism, institutionalized racism and intergenerational Mm -hmm. poverty and trauma. And, you know, when you hear someone say like, uh, I don't know, derogatory things or, or stigma, you know, stigmatized statements about people who have criminal justice involvement, just kind of understanding where they're coming from and, you know, validate that and, and inform them of what, you know, what we've learned through this podcast and through the 13th documentary and, all that kind of stuff and just um, trying to help people see a different side of things. I think it's a big one. Yeah. The other more like tangible thing we could do is, you know, as employers, be more open to hiring people with felonies. Um, As landlords, be more open to people, you know, being tenants that have felonies um, and all that kind of good stuff. Those are kind of the main ones I can think of. What you said is really important. And I think that just like an education and a better understanding of what people are going through to help you change your own perspective 
It's really important. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming to talk to me and sharing your perspective. Really appreciate having you here. Yeah, thanks for having me and for caring about this issue. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I wish there were more people that cared about it. (laughs) So I hope that people who hear your podcast, um, you know, give it a good listen and and, um, learn a lot from it. I hope so, too. All right. Thank you so much, Brie. Have a good day. Well, you've made it to the end of the final episode. I hope that you enjoyed listening and you found that this podcast was beneficial and insightful. And as always, thank you for listening to Prison Perspective.